morning. Some wonderful fellowship, and that's wonderful. Welcome, everyone. I guess this is the pre-Thanksgiving Sunday, so uh, good to see everyone here. Hope you're all going to get to go visit some family or get family coming to see you this week. It's always a wonderful time to be together. Uh, before we begin today, we need to go over a prayer request. And of course, I know most of you have heard, but our sister Mary Freeman passed yesterday morning. So, um, I don't, I don't know what words to say, it, but, you know, other than it's a wonderful thing. They are where we know they want to be and they wanted to be. And uh, it seems like it happens all the time. When they've been together that long, it don't, they go just like that, don't they? Yeah. It's like one's gone while the other one can't stay around long. It's so crazy. But anyways, please remember the Bonadies and their family and the Freeman family at this time as uh, Mary's passing yesterday. I don't, I don't guess there's any arrangements or anything yet, right? No, okay. All right, uh, our sister Helen Hamrick had back surgery on the 15th, and she is home doing well, so please remember Helen in your prayers. Um, Emily Krippner is back, back in the hospital. She fell again, and she's been having trouble with pain and stuff, so uh, please continue to remember Emily and the Krippner family at this time. Uh, Menku Cheng's kidney procedure is going to be on the 12th of December, uh, they're very hopeful that the mass he has can be removed and there will be no loss of any kidney function. So please remember Minku and Yun Suk and their family as well. Anyone else we need to be remembering this morning? <clears throat> All right, let's go to our Father in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, Father, and we honor you and we praise you and we just uh, we stand in awe of you, Father, and your providence that you have in our lives, Father, the way you take care of us, the way you have given us a hope, that surpasses all understanding, a joy that um, cannot be described, Father, and we thank you so much for that. That should be with those who have been mentioned on our prayer list today, Father, especially uh, the Freeman and Bonadies family and, and others in that family, Father, we ask you to comfort them, help them to be comforted at this time, and uh, we ask you to be with those others that have been mentioned on our prayer list today. They might continue to recover quickly and be back with us, and they might be healed. And we ask anybody that you'll comfort those who are mourning a loss that we might not know about and help us to be good, um, good ministers to them, to help them to be comforted as well, Father. We thank you for this time you've given us to be together as your children, as your family, Father, and time to study your word and help us to take something today that uh, will help us grow spiritually and uh, be better examples, better, better examples of the light shining in this dark world, Father, and we just ask you to continue to be with this congregation, the people here, the love they have for you and the service that they, they want to give, their hearts for service, Father. We just thank you for all of them. Help this congregation continue to grow and, and thrive in the kingdom, Father. And we just ask you to be with us and all that we do, be with the leaders of our communities and our nation, that they might make decisions based on your will, and we might be, uh, be able to glorify you in everything that we do. Of course, we thank you for Jesus, and without him, we'd have no hope, for we are sinners, and we Thank you for sending him that he might die for us, that we might have an opportunity of eternal life, that he has promised us in the end. And forgive us, Father, when we do fall short. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. 
You can be opening up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We'll be continuing our study to there, there today. Uh, we'll see how smart you are. If I ride my horse into town on Friday and the next day I come back on Friday, how can that happen? I know you're smarter than that. Come on. The horse is named Friday. Ah, yeah. What do you call a cow with two legs? Eileen. Okay, a couple dad jokes there to get you started. I know that makes you, makes you feel good. All right, Mark chapter 10 and verse 13. Then they brought little children to him and he, that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who bought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Now surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. All right, so we finished our study last week uh, on, the, on his teaching with the disciples on the sanctity of marriage. And we have parents now bringing their children to Jesus. And of course the disciples... For whatever reason, you know, they don't want to be bothered. They don't think Jesus should be bothered by the kids, right? You know, they're kids. But Jesus is on the contrary. Bring the children. And he has a little frustration and indignation because of it. In fact, in Matthew 19, he also says he lays his hands on them to pray, right? And he's holding and blessing these little children. Parents bring their infants. The word that's used in, um, in Mark is padea. Uh, which can mean children up to 12 years old. But the word that's used in Luke is a brephos or brephos that indicates infants. So this is more likely babies, infants that parents are coming to Jesus with, asking him to pray, pray over them, to bless them. Mark later says that Jesus took them up in his arms, so maybe these are infants as we, might, as we are seeing here. Well, the disciples rebuked the parents, obviously. Perhaps they believe that Jesus is too important for this. He doesn't have time to be disturbed with the kids, right? And, you know, we kind of get that way sometimes, don't we? We, we have too many important things. We can't, we can't be disturbed by the trivial things like what the kids need, you know? Yeah, they, their needs are met, right? But we have more important things to do. And Jesus is pointing out that, no, unless you're religion unless your heart is like a child you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven you cannot be part of the kingdom of heaven unless your heart becomes like a child he blesses them I want to make a couple applications out of this many use this passage or this group of passages to justify infant baptism okay they're saying jesus laying his hands on them you know praying them. doesn't say anything about being baptized but that's what a lot of folks who wanted to justify their infant baptism defend it well use. Of course, that practice didn't start till after 200 A.D. at least, and it began only after the doctrine of original sin developed in the church, um, that infants are born in sin, and we know that's not true. All you got to do is read Ezekiel 18, where the son does not bear the sin of the father. We know that, and, and you know, if you just think about it, that makes common sense. Why would the son have to bear the sin of the father? You know, he didn't have anything to do with what his father does. He wasn't participating in that sin, right? So why would, the, why would the child that's born have to participate? So we understand that not to be true. That is a big thing though, that we have in Christendom today, right? Baptism requires faith and repentance. How do we know that? 
All you got to do is read Acts 2 or Acts 8, right? We have to repent and be baptized for the remission of our sins. There's something that has to go through our minds and our hearts for that to happen. Infant can't do that. Child cannot do that. That case. So that's out of the question. What's he getting at here? As I mentioned before, you have to have childlike virtues, childlike virtues of trust, humility, trusting simplicity, right? You have to believe, of course, you've got to have faith that he is who he is, and you have to take up your cross. You've got to turn yourself over. We've been talking about that a lot the last few weeks, right? What it means to be a true child of God, to take up that cross, deny oneself, understand there is a cost to being a Christian. Understand that there are things that can happen to you to be a disciple. But that's part of that process of entering the kingdom. We have great blessings in the kingdom, in the church. We have great promises that are promised to us in this life and in the hereafter, in eternity. We have that promise of eternal life, that great joy that we're going to have. Not saying that children shouldn't be heeded, though. We need to pray for our children. Of course, we love our children, right? We love our children. We want them to be raised to be good, decent human beings in their adulthood. We want them to be Christians. We want them to obey the gospel just as we have, right? So there is an importance in having blessed the children, having praying for the children. And these families understand who Jesus is now. They're seeing the miracles. They're seeing the signs. They want him to bless the children. But very important thing. Jesus is talking to us there. He's saying you've got to be humble. You've got to be like a child to enter the kingdom. All right. Very important passage. We understand that, right? Then he goes on and he begins to to talk about some other things that we're going to see here uh, uh, as he segues into some other issues here. Uh, And we're going to read about a certain young man beginning in verse 17 there. And he says, Now as he was going out on the road and came running, um, now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life great question right something we all should be asking so jesus said to him why do you call me good no one is good but one that is god you know the commandments do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not bear false witness do not defraud honor your father and your mother and he answered and said to him teacher all these things i have kept from my youth Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had great possessions. We know this is the rich young ruler, right? We know this story. But... What is he getting at here? What can we glean from this set of passages, right? The rich man comes to the right person, right? He comes to Jesus. He wants to know, how do I get eternal life? And remember, we're still under the old law here. We're still in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, keep the commandments. I mean, that's how you have eternal life. You keep the commandments, right? He came to Jesus who could tell him the way (coughs) to eternal life. He asked the right questions. What do I still lack, said in Matthew 19 in his account. 
and he receives the right answers, right? Keep the commandments. And then he says something else, though. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. In Matthew's account, we read that. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Oh, I have kept the commandments. I'm a good guy. I'm a good Christian man. Well, not Christian at the time, but I'm a good Jew, right? I'm keeping the commandments. I've done that since I was a child. Oh, but there's that one thing. He loves money. He loves his possessions. So much so that it costs him eternal life. Oh, man. How pitiful to keep all the commandments and still lose your soul. We just read that back in Mark 8, right? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? In the end, he made the wrong decision. He went away sorrowful. He knew that he had lost his chance at eternal life, but he was so wrapped up in his possessions, he was so um, caught up in that that he couldn't fathom the idea of selling anything. He was very much into it. As he went away, sadly, Jesus talks about the difficulty of riches. Let's read on. Verse 23. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Then who can be saved? <laughs> who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With men is impossible, but, with God, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. What's the problem with riches? What's the, re what's the big deal about having wealth? having possessions, right? Well, they tend to take over. And you think, well, I've got this now. I should be satisfied. But you're not. It doesn't really satisfy you. So you've got to have something else, right? You've got to have a little more money. Oh, you know, the Joneses, i got to get better than them because they bought a new house and they got a big old Mercedes sitting in the driveway. I've got to have something better. It just keeps going and going, doesn't it? You're never really satisfied with it. Oh, but it's so, let me make that purchase in that, that adrenaline flows, that dopamine, whatever it is. You feel good. You feel real good, don't you? But it doesn't last. It's deceitful, right? It's something that may make us feel good in the moment. But after a while, it doesn't really matter. Yes, ma'am. Very good point. Very good point, Louise. Yeah. And she's saying you can be rich as long as you're sharing it with the poor, with God. With that sort of thing. And that's a great segue in what I was going to say next. Absolutely. Nothing wrong 
with being wealthy. Don't get me wrong, as Louis says, we can have riches. But the point is here, wealth tends to promote a sense of arrogance, a sense of foolish pride, right? And we have to be careful about that. It's not so much that we have riches that becomes the problem. It's that pursuit of riches. It's that undeniable desire to be wealthy, where that becomes your old passion, right? That becomes the whole thing that you want. There are many that were rich in the Bible. Job, remember Job, had many, had much wealth, many possessions. They were all taken away at some point, and he didn't sin, and he was even made wealthier, right? Job, Abraham, very wealthy. David, Solomon, <laughs> Solomon, Barnabas, Philemon, Lydia. All these people had wealth. But as Louise said, they didn't desire it to the ultimate level. They knew God. They humbled themselves before God. They knew what that wealth, where that wealth came from. If they had let the money or mammon become their God, they would not have been willing to serve the true God. So, lessons that can be learned from the problem of riches, of course, one is the folly, folly of covetousness, right? One of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, right? Why be so anxious to be rich? Well, covetousness can become like a form of idolatry, right? We're worshiping the money. We're worshiping the riches, and that becomes our primary goal above God, above family, above friends, above all the things that we need to be considering. Some have even strayed from the faith because of it, right? Suffered from it. Some have not been content to the point where they even die. I think back in the 20s when the stock market crashed, they talk about how many men jumped out of buildings and stuff because they thought it was over. What a sad comment on your life, right? You were so wrapped up in your wealth that when you lose it, you say, I can't go on. What's the point, right? And that's what we're getting at here. Having a proper perspective on life. You can't take it with you, right? You don't see U-Haul trailers behind the hearse, do you? As Louise said, you've got to be willing to share it. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with having wealth, but it's that attitude, that proper perspective. What is the wealth for? It's to be used in the kingdom, to help the poor, to help those who are in need, to help further the gospel. We've got a lot of missionaries that we support in this congregation, right? Most of you can't go out into the mission field overseas, in Africa, India, wherever, but you can help, use your wealth to help those who are there. You can participate in evangelism that way. That's not the only way, and that shouldn't be your only focus, but that is one way to do it. When we have the proper attitude toward wealth, we can be great servants in the kingdom. Jesus says, though, it's hard for a rich man to be saved. It's not impossible. No one can save themselves. And that's true for poor or rich, right? No one can save themselves. God has to do it. God provided the way. Therefore, rich people need Jesus just as much as poor people. The problem, though, is the rich tend to think they are good, right? 
I don't need anything. Went on a mission trip to Nicaragua several years ago. The poverty there was immense. You just had to walk around and you could see it. So different than being in America. And people would come up to you asking you for, for flyers and for, for material. They wanted to hear what you had to say. Can't imagine walking down the street in Atlanta anybody asking for that. Because they were in need. They were poor. They wanted to know what you rich Americans had to say. What are you bringing here? So there is a difference there. But when we have wealth, we need to remember who it came from. Man, you have been blessed beyond belief in here. And I know not everybody in here is rich as everybody else. But go to Nicaragua and see how they live. Or go to another third world country and see the dirt floors with a cinderbox wall with a fan going because they can't afford an air conditioner. Wealth can be used for good, and you should do that. The issue of wealth is not so much that we have it, but that we are keeping the proper attitude. As Louis said, we are taking up our cross. We are humble. Even though we've been blessed, we are using it for good. Poverty can make someone bitter just as much as someone who is rich can be apathetic. Remembering who we come from will get us in the right direction. All right, let's move forward. Mark 10, uh, verse 28 says, Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. All right. The rich young ruler has sadly left, choosing his possessions over following Jesus. After which Peter says, well, look, look, Lord, we, we've left everything. We left all that we had. And Matthew even adds in his account in chapter 19, therefore, what shall we have? He asks the question. Well, what do we have as a Christian? Yeah, Jesus says, all those who have left family, all those who have left houses and lands, they stay faithful, they will have their reward in the end. Many have left. Some of you in here, I'm sure, have had to deal with family, left family. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Debbie says that the young ruler's last words are follow me, right? That is true. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Peter's saying, well, we've left everything, Father. What, Lord, what, what, what do we get, right? What, what's going to happen with us? Well, first of all, we're talking about the earthly relations, right? That earthly family, that leaving family. In Luke, he mentions wife, which is not found in some of the translations of Mark, but it is in Luke. Not to suggest, suggest that that's always something that has to happen. Uh, I wouldn't. I don't know that I would know about Christ if it wasn't for my family, right? I have a, my descendants are all Christians. I mean, my, in, in, 
that's how, how I knew about him. But many of you may have come from outside your family. Of knowing, you may have known Christ from outside your family, and you might have been rejected. I don't know. Some of that may be going on. That's a tough deal, right? Especially when you have great love for your family, when you've been, had a wonderful family life, but to have a difference in belief, that could be tough. That could be something that can be very hard, right? Turn over to Romans chapter 16, and let's read a couple of verses from Romans 16. And this is where Paul writes to them about those who are with him, those that they've been dealing with. Verse 1, he says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many, though myself also. Greet Pris Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Now, I want to read that to point out that Aquila and Priscilla obviously had some wealth. Right? They have a house, which, you know, that's a sign of being wealthy in that time and that culture. They didn't sell it, they're using it as a church. So they're putting it to good use in the kingdom. Right? They haven't had to give that up. Because they have that humble spirit, right? They have that desire to do what God wants, the desire to further the gospel. So they're putting it to good use. Disciples often sold their lands, though. They use that money in the, in the, in the, uh, to, to spread the gospel in the kingdom, needing the needy. And Paul certainly gave up much. You can read about that in Philippians. Jesus and his kingdom must come before possessions. That's what really the... The, the, the idea we have here, right? In, while we're here on the earth, we have to put him first. Simple as that. Yeah, I know. I said that's simple, but it's not as easy to do, is it? It's not as easy to live humbly, especially when those around you are ridiculing you or everybody's living it up, right? Everybody's life is different. <clears throat> but Jesus speaks on there in verse 30 about the hundredfold blessings in this time of brothers, sisters, mothers, and children. Well, who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about you, our family, our true family. One of the reasons we come together on Sunday morning is because we want to see members of the family. I, we, we were late getting started this morning because y'all couldn't shut up. You wouldn't talk to each other. I understand that. You haven't seen each other for a few days. Thanksgiving coming up. You're going to see family that you may not have seen in months, right? You can't wait. He's looking so forward to it. Mom's going to work and slave in the kitchen all night and all day, cooking the turkey so it'll be gone in five minutes because she loves her family. We have a family here, though. If nothing else, we got that. And guess what? That's the only family we know for sure is going to last through eternity, right? Yeah, I know. I don't mean your family's not going with you. But we know for sure those who believe are going to. And that's a wonderful blessing, right? That's a wonderful blessing now as it is in eternity. The fulfillment of this statement is seen in the church, right? 
Well, Peter probably needed to hear this. The disciples probably need to hear this because they're, you know, they're seeing some things here that go kind of contrary to the culture, don't they? What's the culture say, you know? Get all you can get. You only hear short, life is short. Get all you can get. You know, be rich. Enjoy life. Be, you know, live with some luxury. Really, when you get down to it, anything other than clothing and food is a luxury. Think about it, right? I mean, we're not promised wealth. We're not promised health. We're not promised wealth. We're not promised these things, right? Those who follow him are promised great things. A new heaven and a new earth. A father's house where there are many rooms. John 14. The holy city, the new Jerusalem that we read about. What glorious awards await those who follow Jesus to the end, right? Mark says Jesus also included persecution. Did you notice that? Together with those rewards, there's going to be a cost. There's going to be some persecution. And as I said before, we got it pretty good here in America, but don't think there's nothing going on here. You know, but think about those who live in other places, like, I don't know, uh, North Korea. Can you imagine being a Christian in North Korea or China? Some of these other places where Christians are killed in India? You know, we support some missionaries in India, and they know Christian friends who've been killed because of their Christianity. It happens. In Matthew's gospel, he follows this with the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And he talks about how you need to be busy, you need to be a servant, and you need to have the right attitude. Then Jesus segues into something else there. And let's read on. Get back to Mark 10. <clears throat> Mark 10 and verse 32. Actually, verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them. Oh, wait a minute. I skipped. Did I skip here? I'm in nine, chapter 9. Hold on a minute. Mark 10, verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to them. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Okay, so on three separate occasions now, Jesus has predicted his coming passion and the resurrection. Remember in the region of Caesarea Philippi in chapter 8, he emphasized the necessity of going to Jerusalem in chapter 9, while, dwelling through, while traveling through Galilee, he stressed the certainty of it. And now again, as they're on the road to Jerusalem, they're headed there. He describes it in greater detail. The first time, remember, Peter rebuked him. says, no, 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 you're not gonna, that's not going to happen. The second time they heard it, they didn't say anything. They were amazed and going, astonished, right? They didn't know what to do. But this time, they're headed to Jerusalem. And he's telling them what's going to happen. Can you imagine what they're thinking? Not only that, Mark talks about how he's in the lead, right? He's up ahead. They're following from a, a distance, and they're amazed. 
He is determined to get there. So can you imagine what's going through their heads right now? What, what is he talking about? If this is true, why is he so anxious to get there? You know, can you imagine what Jesus is going through this time? Oh, many of you have had to have some major surgeries, right? Some of you may have been on the brink of death. I don't know. You remember what was going through your mind at the time? The anxiety you were feeling? Maybe it was a spouse even, a friend. Maybe it wasn't you, but you understood what they were going through, and it was making you feel bad. Can't imagine what was going through his mind. And the disciples are amazed that he is so determined to get to Jerusalem. And even the other disciples that are following are amazed. Awesome thing to see, right? He describes it in greater detail, and he makes the point that this is going to happen probably more adamant than ever, right? <clears throat> this is Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem. He's leading as we talked about. He has that steadfast determination to get there. He even says that in Luke chapter 9. And the disciples are filled with awe. Well, what is this prediction? What is this thing he says? He's going to be betrayed. Betrayed to the chief priests and rulers, right? Report, uh, referring to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews. And we read about that in Mark chapter 14 where that prediction is fulfilled. He says he'll be condemned. Condemned to death. And delivered to the Gentiles. Referring to the Romans who alone had authority to put him to death. And that's fulfilled in Mark 14. We'll get to there eventually too. He will be mocked, treated with contempt, and ridiculed. That'll be fulfilled in Mark 15, verses 16 through 20. He'll be scourged to be whipped, punished severely. What was a Roman scourging? It's so hard to even describe it, man. You know, they had that thing with the tongs with bone or metal end of it. And they strip the person down and lay them out on a post, tied to a post. And start whipping the flesh with that thing. You imagine just how it just ripped your, your skin off. And the meat. And the blood. That's fulfilled. You can read about it in Mark 15. He spat on saliva and phlegm with anger and contempt. You know, we, we, it's one thing to be beaten, but when you, has anybody ever spat on you? Yeah, that, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but when it happens, it tears you up, don't it? <laughs> Who dare you spit on me? Right? There's something about that. Back there looking at you like you're scum. Makes me feel very good. That's happened to me. I've had that happen. It's not good. That was fulfilled in Mark chapter 14. He's killed. His death follows the mockery and the torture. <clears throat> Jesus knew his manner of death coming, and that's fulfilled in Mark 15. And then that thing that, that they don't really understand. What do you mean? What do you mean raised again? They don't get it. Raising on the third day from the dead. He foretold this very early in his ministry. It's not something that's new to him. He's been saying this all along. And that's fulfilled in Mark 16. Jesus knew what was coming, adding to his stress and anxiety. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. I want to read this passage here real quick. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> 
beginning in verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Man, if you're ever down and out, wondering how you're going to be able to live as a Christian, read those verses. Those are awesome verses. Nothing in your life can compare to what Jesus went through. Nothing. They say, well, I've gone through some pretty rough stuff. <laughs> remember, always remember, he died for you. That should be enough right there. Got a great promise waiting on us. Why would you want to go past that? Why would you give that up? Turn your own to Mark 10. And then we're going to read about some stupid... I call it stupidity. I'm not sure if that's the right word. Arrogance, maybe. I don't know. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? I just can imagine him saying it like that. They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. Very interesting passage. Um, Matthew adds that his, their, James and John's mother was involved with this. It was actually, in his account, her mother, their mother was asking about this. Right? After all that's been going through, the disciples don't understand what's going on here. Maybe it's coming from that, that they're wondering, well, if he's going to die what's going to happen to us you know maybe it's coming from that vein you know i tend to want to think that's where it's not just that they're just conceited about it or something maybe there i got the idea well when he's gone who's going to be taken over i don't know but the point being is they ask him this question is we want to sit at your right hand we want to be exalted like you we want to be right there and sitting next to the big seat the seat of honor, right? Jesus probably is a little indignant about it, but he understands, I'm sure. And he, I guess, shows some compassion and says, that's not mine to give. Only the Father above gives that. But he goes on to say, are you ready for that? 
Are you ready to take the cup, drink from the cup, and be baptized with my baptism? What is he referring to, of course? The cup of suffering that we've just been talking about, right? To drink the cup metaphorically to get one's fill. Are you ready to be filled up with the persecution and the suffering that you're going to suffer to follow me? Have you ready to take up the baptism of suffering that he's going to suffer? And that is going to happen, right? We read that the disciples did suffer, right? The apostles experienced by James, Acts 12, he was killed. Experienced by John in exile in Revelation. Experienced by the apostles in general. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 4. Experienced by Paul, 2 Corinthians 11. Oh, we've read about that many times. By the disciples today, many believers in Christ continue to suffer much, right? As we mentioned, in Muslim nations, China, North Korea, we mentioned other places. When you take up your cross, you better be ready to drink from the cup. The baptism he mentioned is not the baptism for salvation. He's talking about a baptism that's going to overwhelm us. That's going to overwhelm the disciples there, James and John. It's going to be something that nobody can even imagine in their minds, right? He's saying, are you ready for that? Are you ready to take that? Because eventually you're going to get to drink from the cup of blessing, right? The cup which blesses the fruit of the vine. You can kind of think about that in the fruit of vine in the Lord's Supper, right? We now remember him by drinking from the cup, which we drink in memory of him. Participating in the blood of Christ, right? There's that baptism we now have for forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're penitent believers are commanded to be immersed in water. We're sins are washed away as we appeal to the Lord. Where we're buried into Christ's death raised the newness of life, Romans 6, where we put on Christ, becoming children of God through our faith, Galatians 3, where we undergo the working of God in the Holy Spirit, Colossians 2. Jesus foretold that James and John would drink from the cup of suffering and be baptized with the baptism of suffering. It goes right along with the theme we've been talking about, taking up your cross, right? Are you ready, are you willing to drink from the same cup? to be baptized with the same baptism. Yeah, we got it good in this country, but that don't mean you're not going to be persecuted. And if you haven't already, you're probably going to, if you're serving Christ. All right. Thanks for bearing with me. Our time's up.